This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Janet Skeslin charles what a formidable name. Welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. I'm excited to be here. So you are in Paris and I am in Sydney. I tell you, I've been all around the globe in the last uh, couple of days. Yesterday, I podcasted a fellow from Texas, this morning, London, and now Paris. I mean, I'm wow. international, right? Yes, you are. <laughs> it's lovely to hear yeah. So let me introduce you. Janet is an award-winning author with over a decade's worth of roaming the streets of Paris and researching in its libraries. I mean, it just seems dreamlike, actually, <laughs> but we'll talk about that. Originally from Montana, as a child, she lived on the same street as a French war bride and was fascinated by the war stories of her French professor. Her debut novel, Moonlight in Odessa, was published in 10 languages and was awarded the Melissa Nathan Prize and is it the Compliment Livre Prize in Strasbourg. Her latest novel, uh, and this is the one we're going to be talking about today, The Paris Library, um, which is inspired by the true story of the librarians who risked their lives during the Nazis' war on words. Janet began to research the book when she worked as a programs manager at the American Library in Paris, where she still lives, as we said. So welcome, welcome, Janet. So excited. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm glad to be here too. It's um, it's one of the gifts of COVID because there aren't very many gifts, uh, but one of the gifts of COVID has really been Zoom or, or the ability to podcast yes. internationally. Yes, absolutely. To reach out and yeah. to to communicate with people all over the world, it really is in, in one's pyjamas. Yes, It exactly. really is lovely. <laughs> so, yeah, because it's late evening for you and it's early morning for me, so we're both um, in pyjamas. So let's talk about growing up in Montana because that's not a bad place either to grow up. I mean, I haven't been, but I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've seen it in movies and it looks strikingly beautiful. It's a beautiful landscape. So talk to me about that and how how a young girl from Montana gets to France. Well, I love Montana. It is so beautiful. It smells so good. There's so much space and the people are really lovely. But when I was growing up in a town of 2000, I just had one wish, which was to get out. And I think that's a dream of a lot of small town girls. And for some reason, we equate the big city with bigger and better um, when sometimes it's just bigger. And uh, I lived next door to a war, right? And that's where my love of French came from. So I studied French in school and then I came to France for... Can I just one... interrupt you? Because yes. how does a war bride, where was she from, get to Montana? She was from France. So she yeah. was from Rouen in Normandy near the D-Day beaches. And she met her husband who was from Montana. Okay. And so she traveled with him to Montana, to a very small town, and, you know, that must have been very hard for her, you know, leaving her her friends, her family, her country, even her language behind, mm. 
So I always wanted to write about a war bride because I just admired her so much and admired her courage. But um, I came to Paris for for one year uh, um, with a teaching contract. And like a lot of people who come here, we just keep renewing our contracts. And then maybe we meet a Frenchman and then we get married and then that's a long-term contract. So that's how that happened. And did that happen for you? It did. Yeah, wow. Um, so growing up, um, you've missed a, a huge... Ch- I want to know what influences brought you to writing. So, you know, were you writing in um, when you were younger? Were you reading? Was it that did you want to be a librarian or did you have fantasies of being a writer? How, how did that all come about? Because, you know, as I was talking earlier with, with an author, writing is not a clear career path, right? as is a librarian, for instance, or as is a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. So when you were growing up, what is it? Where was that passion? I've always loved the written word. My grandmother had never learned to drive. So once a week, my mother would drive her to the grocery store and to the library. And those are the two places that my grandmother went. And so I knew that books were just as nourishing as food and I just saw the the library as a window to the world and I just loved being able to check out my own books to have my own opinions and to roam the library at will it was really wonderful to be able to do that and I've always been a writer I always had a journal I've always been scribbling maybe now I'm an author but I've always been a writer I like that visiting the library and visiting the uh the general store or the supermarket that's really They are both nourishing. You're dead right. Mm. So um, tell me how then, so what did you study at university? How is it that you came to being published, if you like? I studied English, French and Russian, but you're so right that there, uh, until recently, there haven't really been courses on publishing or how to get published. I think with the internet now you can actually Google how to get published or how to find a publishing contract. But at the time, you just kind of send your queries out into the world and you don't really know how to do it unless you're with a university program specifically for writing. But a lot of times those those programs say, oh, don't worry about the the business side of it to work on your art. So, um, which is good, but you still need to have the practical side of things and it's really helpful to have the practical side of things. So by trade, are you a teacher or a librarian? By trade, I'm a teacher. I've I've been a teacher for over 25 years. Right. And you teach in Paris? I taught until last year. I was, um, for the last seven years, I'd been teaching engineers and uh, in an engineering school. So I taught a class on creative writing and I taught a class on the city of Paris because I, even though I taught in Paris at a Parisian school, the students never stepped outside the library. They were always studying. So unfortunately, uh, there was such pressure to pass their exams, to study for exams, that they never really get a chance to enjoy the city. Mm. So we got to do that a little bit in, in, in school. <laughs> it doesn't sound, marry that well for me, engineering and creative writing. Oh, they're really good. They understand structure. They build bridges. They build bridges. You can trust them. You can trust them with your stories. Can you? Tell me about your journey to Paris then. So where were you when you decided that, you know, I'm going to leave Montana or wherever you were living at the time and I'm going to go to France? Tell me about that. 
Well, I, as I said, it was just for one year, and yeah. so you can do anything for one year. And I actually was very interested in publishing, very interested in writing, but didn't know how to get my foot in the door. It, it was a lot easier for me to be a teacher and to, to get a teaching job because those are concrete skills that I already had. So you woke up one morning and you decided, I'm going to take a year, and you arrive in France. Or where, where was your first stop? I just want to know the cultural impact because I'm not meaning to stereotype here, but, you know, Australians um, are born travellers, you know, because we're so mm-hmm. far away. We, we are so desperate from the minute we're little to actually leave Australia and travel the world. Uh, we do come back, but it is, it's a, it's a coming of age thing. We all do it. Um, and my first stop when I left Sydney and the first time I'd ever been on an aeroplane, my first stop was Vienna. And I couldn't believe, because Sydney is such a relatively new country in terms of, you know, uh, white Australians. It's a, it's a uh, Indigenous culture, of course. But for me, in Sydney is such a modern city. And when I got to Vienna, which was my first stop, I couldn't believe how old everything was. I really found it very overwhelming visually. I found it in the first couple of days, I found it overwhelming in terms of smell. You know, cities have their own smell, their own sense. And I had to lock myself in my hotel room for, you know, overnight to then come back and face it in the morning because it seemed like complete overstimulation. So what was it like for you? Well, I had come here as a, a teen because I was a, an exchange student. So I lived with okay. a family in eastern France in the city of Metz. And I experienced just what you did. I, I thought everything was so different. I just took pictures of everything. Everything from the food to the bathroom. Everything was different. Everything was interesting. I loved it all. It really made me want to come back. And when I got married... I, um, 20 years later, that, that host family came to our wedding. So it was really, really lovely to to have that those ties and to have that friendship. You were thinking about France even back in your teens. Yes. Yeah. Tell me your exchange student experience. Talk to me about that. Well, I was 15 and then I was 17 and I came during the summers. And I just, one was in Brittany. Uh, we had girls um, from France who stayed with us and then I would stay with them in with their families and it was just really a wonderful way to practice the language and to get to know the culture and I think that that really fostered my love uh, of France when things got hard because of course when you have a job and adult responsibilities uh, things aren't always so easy but that that early love uh, really got me through some hard days. And so when were you um, speaking in French? I won't say fluent because I know that that that's often uh, people say you're not fluent until you know you've been living somewhere a squillion years but for you when did you feel fluent in French when was it that you didn't have to think about the language as you were speaking I think even as a teen I I felt comfortable with the language but probably because we don't we're not as self-conscious as some other people Montanans are not self-conscious in France I've met people who have studied English for 10 years and will not say a word because they feel so self-conscious and I think it's a real pity to have that knowledge and be afraid to use it because mm, you know often I say oh you know um, and she was fluent in French and she was oh they're probably not completely fluent well I mean for me fluency is the fact that you can communicate and that you don't have to think about it and that your daily life is it more about speaking in French than speaking in English I mean you know in in terms of what's your first language now would you say 
Well, um, I'm American. My husband is French, so we speak both languages at home. Uh, a lot of times for work, you know, I'm dealing with support staff. I'm dealing with French students. So there's always French. French bureaucracy is really hard to tackle. So uh, a lot of it is in French, of course. That's, mm. that's normal. Mm, it is normal. And would you say that French would be, is now your first language? No, 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 no. Um, I don't think I could write in French. I think I write a lot of French letters to respond to bureaucracy, but I don't think my French would be beautiful in novels. I think I've got to stick to English for that. All right. Okay. They do get translated, though. It did, yes. Both my books were translated into French, but I, I admire the translators. I could not have done their work. Have that you read translation the translation? Is a gift. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And to get the nuance, I mean, to go translating word for word, that's one story, but to actually translate a fiction novel is really... I think so complex um, and a beauty in its own, if you like. Well, and of course, the French translators have uh, issues that we as Anglophones don't have because the characters go from the formal vous to the informal tu at some point, and we as English speakers, it's you all the time. And so, the a lot of translators have to make that choice when when do the characters get close enough to. Uh, use the informal, which I think is an interesting choice. Mm. I often ask people, um, expats or people living in different countries, what what do they dream in? Like, you know, I, I remember visiting a fabulous um, Australian author living in LA and she'd written this book, that a fiction, beautiful fiction book that was so quintessentially Australian and she hadn't lived in Australia for years. And I, well, and Peter Carey, um, who you might, might have heard of, I mean, he writes quintessentially Australian books. And is it what you dream in? Do you often think about that? Is it, you know, when you close your eyes and is it that you dream American, if you like, or dream French? I dream both. You dream, dream both. both. Yeah. Yes. I have a, uh, an Australian friend who lives in uh, France now. He lived in Paris for a long time and now he lives, now I'm not going to pronounce this properly, but I think it's Perpignan. Um, and uh, he's a beautiful writer, actually. He hasn't been published, but he does, does write. His name's Greg Maris, but he he has learnt the French language over the 17 or 20 years that he's lived there. And I, he and I met in Copenhagen just very recently when we could travel back in 2019. And he was he bought a bunch of magazines, right, and he was reading them. And I said, what have you got? And he said, oh, you know, I've got time, I've got this, I've got whatever. And I said, oh, throw it over. And he threw it over and I picked it up and it was in French. And I said, Greg, <laughs> this is French. And do you know, for him, it was seamless, the French-English thing, and he didn't realise that he was passing me a French magazine that I couldn't have read. Does that happen to you? No, no, I'm always aware of who speaks what. <laughs> you are. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the Paris Library and where the story came about. Well, as I said, I grew up next to a war bride, a French war bride, so I definitely wanted to write about a war bride someday just because of the challenges that they face. And so many of us face when we when we spend time overseas, we kind of have to reinvent ourselves or we don't when we're speaking a foreign language, we don't have the same assurance as we do when we when we speak our native language. And so those are the themes that I'm interested in anyway, women reinventing themselves. And so That's where I got started. Even when I was 10 years old, I knew that I wanted to write about a war bride. And then I got a job at the American Library in Paris, which is, uh, despite its name, a very international place. Uh, 60 nationalities are represented in its membership, and the staff is very international. Um, They come from all over the world. When I was there, uh, there was a a gentleman from Italy who had worked there since the 1970s, and he knew everything about the library. And he and another colleague, uh, Naida Kalshaw, told me about the history of the library, that during the war, the the librarians hand-delivered books to Jewish readers. And the story gave me chills, and I knew it was a novel, and I wanted to write it. Mm, it is. It's a beautiful story. Um, so talk to me about that period. Um, and I guess it's the bigger subject of the power of story, isn't it? Yes, I, I think so. It's the real-life story of these librarians who, uh, in the summer of 1939, the um, American amb- ambassador told Americans to leave France that that war was coming, that it was dangerous. And the staff at the American Library in Paris remained at their posts. Three days after war was declared in September of 1939, Dorothy Reeder, the directress of the library, started the soldiers program, which sent books to English and French soldiers who were uh, on the Maginot line waiting for uh, combat any day. And uh, they wrote to the library asking for books either in English and French, mysteries or Westerns or National Geographic magazine, whatever they wanted to read, and the library sent them care packages. And so from September of 1939 to May of 1940, 100,000 books were sent to these soldiers. And the soldiers wrote back, they sent packages of cigarettes, watercolors of the things that they saw, and uh, they sent thank you notes. One was from a, a British captain that I included in the novel. Um, so it was really a nice exchange between the, the librarians and the soldiers. Then, of course, the Nazis approached uh, Paris, and the librarians should have left again. The staff did leave. They went west uh, but Dorothy Reeder, the directress, remained at the library. So she was there from day one of the occupation. And what she saw was that on day three of the occupation, the Germans entered the Polish library, which sits in the shadow of Notre Dame, and they, they took all the books and all the archives and sent them back to Germany. They then went to the Russian library, which sits very, which sat very close to Shakespeare and Company. Then they went to the Ukrainian library. They even took the Ukrainian librarian. So you can understand why the librarians at the American Library were nervous. Eventually, a Nazi did come. He was called the Bibliothekschutz, the the library protector. And he said that certain people 
could not enter the library, meaning Jewish people. And so this is why the librarians decided to hand deliver those books. It's because the Jewish readers were no longer allowed to enter libraries. Mm. Remarkable story. And you would think, you know, when you chose your occupation as being a librarian, you would have thought back then that it was a relatively safe job, wouldn't you? Yes, yes. <laughs> you would never in your wildest dreams have imagined that. Mm. Um, it, it just got me thinking while you were telling us that story. I mean, I know that um, COVID isn't the Second World War, but it is a pandemic and it is something that has made, you know, a lot of people have lost their lives and a lot of hardship has come to people. And I'm sure it's the same in France, but here in Australia, and I know it's the same in America and the UK, people have turned to reading. Book sales are up phenomenally. Talk to me about that and the power of story, I think, when, when really you're stuck where you are. I think so. I think books are a way for us to travel while we're sitting at home and it's a way to relate to other people. It's, I, I hope, a way to have empathy for other people. And it's true uh, in lockdown here and in the States when we can't really go out and see our friends as much as we'd like to or spend time with our families and travel as much as we'd like to. It's a way to still be with the outside world. And I know that uh, bookstores here in France uh, mean so much to us readers and uh, we do everything we can to to go and to keep them alive and to buy our books. Um, to libraries are the same. Uh, we just really treasure our libraries. So mm. it's, it's so important. And you, you mentioned bookstores there and booksellers. I mean, I noticed it here as well. You know, I mean, we've been very lucky in Australia, as you know, in terms of COVID. And because we kind of were very stringent and, and, and took a hard line very early on and it's worked. But first stage of lockdown, I saw those booksellers and libraries as well one, they adapted really quickly, you know, they went, they couldn't have people in the stores, so they adapted to online really quickly, they adapted to, you know, deliveries and drop-offs and, you know, I saw booksellers working night and day trying to get books to people and libraries, you know, I mean, they are just fantastic um, early adopters of everything but you know really again changing with the times and changing very quickly as teachers did as well to get stories into people's hands and I think for a lot of people it was a lonely lockdown was a lonely time. Yes I think the world could be divided into people who never had a moment to themselves mm. and people who were just aching with loneliness mm. so I think in both situations to escape uh, or to find some camaraderie absolutely books were definitely the answer and I know the American Library here did click and collect so that people could still have access to books and I talked to the director Audrey Chapri and she said that the numbers uh, for click and collect were almost the same as in normal times so people really were depending on on libraries to to get them books. Yeah, a friend of mine said to me the other day, so I've worked um, in, in the book industry for a very long time and I've always seen the solace in reading, you know. I mean, it's, it's solace for me and what you get. But this friend of mine I was talking to the other day and it, this hadn't crossed my mind. She said there were those people that were isolated during COVID and, and, so, and a lot of people are still now, but by themselves. And, of course, reading was absolute solace a, a way to connect a way to escape from the thoughts and the fear but she said even if you were in in lockdown with a family if everybody's reading a book you're actually in your own space for a time 
you know, mm-hmm. because you are in your own world. And that was a beautiful, I hadn't thought about that, in, you know, that, like the collective read, readers. Well, and it's true in, in World War II, books were distributed to soldiers and a lot of them, you know, they lived communally um, and in hospitals, especially they couldn't have visitors Their you know, their families were a world away. And uh, so they were constantly surrounded by people, but not necessarily friends. And so uh, books gave them a privacy of the mind where they could be alone with, with their thoughts. So it's true, books, books are important when we feel isolated, but they're also important when we're, that we're surrounded by people and we need a moment to ourselves. Mm. Tell me how you first got published. Because you're writing in English and living in France. So how did that happen? Yes. Well, I lived in Odessa, Ukraine from 1994 to 1996, and I really enjoyed it. It took a long time for me to make sense of my time there. It was right after Perestroika, and so it was the Wild East. A lot of very strange things happened. There was a lot of mafia. There was a lot of corruption. Even in the high school where I worked, the corruption was phenomenal. So I started writing in 2006. I finished the book in 2008, and then I queried I queried agents, and I got an agent, and uh, the the book sold. Uh, I think there was uh, an agent in New York who had a blog called, and she was Miss Snark, and so you could learn how to write a query letter because she talked about the how to write a query letter and how to get your work out to agents, and so it was kind of the beginning at the time on the internet when when a girl from Montana who lives far away from New York could have access to that information. And so, you know, you sent it just like that and you got a response really quickly or how did that transpire? I sent out queries and I also went to a writing conference in Geneva, which was a weekend conference. It was very inexpensive and it was the kind of place where during during the meal times you would sit with the instructors so it was very cozy it was small it was very open and so I'm one of the agents there I I sent to to that agent and so um, she was interested and uh, she offered representation for that book she she didn't like this new book and so we parted ways it was a second book I'd written that wasn't maybe she wasn't too keen on and so I started the process again and this process was longer it took about 75 queries well aren't we lucky that it finally happened <laughs> well, it's just it's persistence isn't it you just yeah. have to keep going as writers you have to keep going and and it's true rejection uh is is demoralizing but it's just like looking for love it's like looking for a job you've got to wait for the right one or you got to be patient and you've got to go out and find it yeah, absolutely. Um, do you get to go, I, I know not probably not during COVID, but do you get to go home often? Um, yes, I used to go twice a year and I haven't been home since March. So, yeah. When you go home, is, is the, I mean, because, you know, one, you're in, in France, but two, you're in Paris. And when you go back to Montana, what is that like? Is it like, oh gosh, I'm home, it's quiet, I'm, you know, there is something here that I, you know, I connect to? Or is it like, oh, I'm noticing all the differences and, you know, what I do like and what I don't like? Tell me about that experience. Well, I love Montana and I've always loved Montana. And I think the farther I'm away from it, the more I appreciate it when I'm home. And so I just slip into my regular routine, coffee in the morning, getting some writing done, spending time with family and friends, going for walks. It's a pretty easy routine. I, you know, I'm a school teacher, so I, I had summers off so I could go home in the summer, which was nice. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's a dream of mine to get to Montana at some point. Yeah. Um, I, hope but, so <laughs> I hope so too. But, you know, it just seems like the complete opposite to Paris. A little bit about kind of yearning. I mean, you know, often I talk to people and they could be, you know, people who uh, are expats or marry like yourself. They marry a French person or an Italian person or whatever. And there's that pull constantly of who you are. Do you feel that? No. 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 No, because I I don't have French nationality. I've never requested French nationality. I I am who I am. Yeah. I am who I am. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Okay, well, we'd better let you go because we've run out of time. Such a, a wonderful chat. The book is called The Paris Library. Janet, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, thank you, Cheryl. It's just been a delight. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.